One quick more announcement. We have several in your bulletin, so you can check those out. There's some things coming in February, but uh, this week on Thursday evening, uh, Linda and Harvey Phillips, our members in mission, will be sharing at the Lee's Home Fellowship. So if you, it, the address is in the bulletin, and it's open to everyone. So whether you're in the Lee's Home Fellowship or not, come and hear from Harvey and Linda. They were kind of supposed to share this morning a little bit and then share more in the Home Fellowship. Things came up for them that they are not able to be with us this morning. But uh, please go this Thursday and uh, support them. Just hear about their ministry so we're able to pray for them. They're, they serve uh, in Hong Kong. So, uh, okay. So today we're going to continue our series through uh, the Peter's first letter to the churches of Asia Minor, uh, which is located modern-day Turkey. We'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. In these verses, Peter continues to give uh, practical instructions for how Christians, he calls them, if you remember, we talked about this a lot through the, the book, he calls them elect exiles, chosen by God, but really living in this world, which is not their home, living as uh, representatives of Jesus Christ. So he's instructing them how to do that in this world, a world that is not only sinful, but hostile to those who follow Christ. So one of Peter's purposes is to prepare his readers to face suffering for righteousness' sake, uh, to face the hostility and persecution and suffering that comes from a world that rejects God and therefore rejects and hates uh, his children. In chapter 3, at the beginning, and at the beginning of chapter 4, Peter has been encouraging us both uh, with the purpose of suffering and preparing us for suffering. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, which we looked at last week, he armed us with four ways to prepare for suffering. And next week, when we get to verse 12, suffering will again take center stage. You guys enjoying this suffering? Well, you get a little break today, maybe. It's as if Peter uh, is saying, so, so suffering is still in the context, so we're still in the context, so before and after, but it's not mentioned in our passage today. It's as if Peter is saying, suffering may come, but whether it does or not, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong dominion, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice that Peter begins this paragraph by drawing our attention to the end of all things. Have you ever seen those guys that wear those sandwich boards? Uh, I don't know if I've seen one actually in person. I've seen lots of pictures or signs that say something like, Repent, the end is near. 
Their point is that we're living in sort of the last times, and therefore we need to turn to God. Now, we tend to dis- dismiss these sign-wielding folks, right? They're a bit odd, we think, but they have a point, a point that is similar uh, to the point Peter's making. Now, as far as I know, Peter didn't wear a sandwich board or carry a sign, but in this God-inspired letter, he does write, the end of all things is at hand. Now, just to be clear, uh, from the context of this letter and of the whole Bible, when Peter says all things, he's not referring to the eternal things of God, which in verse 11, he says will last forever and ever. Instead, he's referring to the temporal things of this world, the things of this world, the end of all things in our world is at hand. But notice, unlike most sandwich boards, Peter doesn't say the end is near. He says it's here. It's at hand. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament. We're told that the end has already begun. It came with Christ's resurrection when God's plan of salvation was fully put into place and it will be fully consummated upon Christ's return. Therefore, we have been and continue to be living in the final stages of history. I know it's been over 2,000 years since the resurrection of Christ, but since that time, we, all people, have been living in the last days. As Peter writes in chapter 1, he, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made, but was made manifest in the last times. For the sake of you. Jesus, his manifestation on earth, his coming, his living, his dying, his resurrection, signaled the beginning of the last times. So yes, the end is at hand. This is from an eternal perspective, right? Christ has always existed and now beginning upon his resurrection, let's say, This is the the last segment. This is the end. And this should be part of our thinking, part of our worldview. The fact that we're living in the last age should cause us to, to wrestle with what to do with the time we have left. We don't have the luxury of procrastinating, of wasting our lives away. Yet many Christians, uh, it seems, do this very thing. They keep looking to the future, uh, as the time, sometime in the future, when they'll truly give themselves to God, truly give themselves to His purposes. After I get out of school, after I get married, after I get a good job, after I buy my first home, after I have kids, after I raise kids, or even after I retire, then I'll begin living fully for the Lord. And it's that kind of thinking that causes Christians to waste their lives. They put off the plans and purposes of God. They forget that the biblical truth is that this is the end. The end is at hand. Because even if Christ's return is not for many years, each of our lives on earth is short. And our end is always at hand. How tragic when we forget this. But thankfully, in our passage today, Peter points us in another direction. He instructs us in living the way God desires in these last days. He presents four foundational, uh, very straightforward ways 
to live in light of the end. So let's look at them one by one. First, he tells us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Two things, but they're closely related. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because of that, and this, that therefore sort of applies to the rest of the passage as well, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So Peter's generating a sense of urgency here. Do you sense that? Because the end of all things is at hand, then the time is now to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, he's not saying that if the end was not at hand, then you wouldn't need to be self-controlled or sober-minded. He's just making sure we understand the importance, the urgency of our situation. And notice he begins with the mind. He begins with the thinking, the way you think. This is the same thing he did in verse 1 of chapter 4. It's really two sections. Verses 1 through 6 is a section, be armed with these things. Then verses uh, 7 through 11 is in light of the end, do these things. And so in both instances, he begins with the mind. Remember verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We're to arm ourselves with the thinking of Christ. And Christ was certainly self-controlled and sober-minded. The word sober-minded means to be thoughtful, to think, to analyze, to be calm, cool, and collected, if you will. And the word for self-controlled, you know, we don't, you know, we think that's sort of an action word, but really at the root of it, it's, it means to have a sound mind, to be right-minded. It, it includes, out of that, the idea of controlling yourselves, controlling your actions based on right thinking. Right thinking should leave, lead to right acting or sober, sober thoughtful self-control. This corresponds to what we looked at last week in verse 2 of First Peter chapter 4. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Being sober-minded, self-controlled, will lead you away from the pursuit of human passions and lead you to the pursuit of God's will. Right thinking leads you to right-controlled, sober, godly living. So living the Christian life begins in the mind. It starts with what you think, what you believe, what you trust in, what you put your faith in. Often religion is characterized by what you do or do not do. You're a good Christian if you do this and if you don't do that. There's often little regard for your internal thoughts, your motivations, a prominent Jewish man that I sometimes listen to on the radio says that he really doesn't care what people believe or think. He only cares about what they do. And I understand his point because it's what we do that matters to those around us. But I'm, I'm really not sure if he understands the direct correlation between our thinking and our acting. The Bible teaches this, is that we are what we think and we're to be thinking people. Yes, we're also to be acting people, as we'll see in the rest of this passage, but our actions flow from our thinking, our thoughts, our beliefs, our faith, our heart, if you will, and our mind. How do we distinguish those? I'm not going to do that today. It's an internal thing. Who we are moves into who we, what we do. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, 
excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. How you live, what you do, has everything to do with what you set your mind upon. What you think about. Are your thoughts focused on the things of this world, the flesh, or are they focused on the things of the Spirit, the things of God? This will dictate how you live. So with that hopefully established, the question is, how do we become self-controlled, sober-minded people? Well, just last week, we talked about the fact that we're, uh, we're given the mind of Christ, right? And that, and, that, and, that, and that we are to think like Christ. And that's certainly the foundational, the beginning uh, uh, of self-control and sober-mindedness, to be like Christ. Without being given the mind of Christ, we would have no hope in accomplishing this. But having the mind of Christ and using the mind of Christ are not always the same thing. It comes down to what we fill our minds with, what we set our minds on, as Paul says to the Romans. Are you filling your mind with the things of this world or with the things of Christ? Do you spend more time in front of a a TV, a phone, a computer, or in front of God's Word? Because what you do Put your, what you put into your mind will determine what you pursue in your life. As someone once said, garbage in, garbage out. Also, don't live like those in the world who are constantly looking for an escape. They look forward to an evening or a weekend when they can turn off their minds. They can desire, they, 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 they desire an escape from reality. You know, just turn on the TV and, what's the word? Veg. Yeah, that's usually what happens. For Christians, this shouldn't be the case. We're to be different. We're to be right-thinking men and women. We're to have our mental faculties with us at all times. And those faculties are to be rightly tuned to the Word and the way and the wisdom and the will of God. So to be self-controlled and sober-minded, we must fill our minds with the things of God. Why? Well, Peter gives us at least one reason at the end of verse 7. Here we find a specific benefit. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Okay. Our right thinking and right acting are for the sake of our prayers. And if you think about it, it just makes sense. If we're uh, to be people of prayer, and we want our prayers to be heard and answered by God, then we must be self-controlled and sober-minded people. Why? Because, Because we need to forsake the pursuits of human passions. Imagine someone who is not self-controlled, who is continually thinking about and indulging in the human passions, the ones we uh, looked at last week in verse 3 that Peter lists, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What hope does such a person have that their prayers will be answered? Well, the psalmist says none. If you have cherished iniquity in your heart, the Lord would not have listened. 
The Lord does not listen to the prayers of those who cherish iniquity in their hearts. This doesn't mean that if you sin, God doesn't hear your prayers. It means if you love sin, if sin dominates your thinking, that is, you're, you're not self-controlled, you give in to all human passions, you're not sober-minded, then the Lord does not listen to your prayers. But He does listen to the prayers of those who are self-controlled and sober-minded. The Apostle John makes that clear when he wrote, and this is in, in 1 John chapter 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Okay? So if we pray according to the will of God, He hears and grants our requests. And it's those who are self-controlled and sober-minded, those who are thinking rightly, thinking according to the will of God, who can pray the will of God. So being self-controlled and sober-minded is crucial for the sake of your prayers. And I would add that along with spending time in the Word of God, it's spending time in prayer that God uses to empower us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. If you're not reading God's Word, and if you're not in prayer, you have no hope of being self-controlled and sober-minded. And the opposite is true. If you do those things, that's where your hope will come. In the Garden of Gethsemane, speaking to his disciples, including Peter, Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's when we watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation. Prayer, being in God's presence, seeking God for his purposes, that's what keeps us from temptation. It keeps us from sin, from indulging in human passions. It empowers us, it empowers our minds with self-control. So I'd encourage you in these last days, not only to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, but also be in prayer for the sake of your self-controlled and sober-mindedness. And then Peter moves from focusing on the mind, so we've got the mind, it's covered, right? You guys good? Got it. Check that off. Okay. Peter moves from focusing on our minds to focusing on how we treat other people in these last days. So flowing from our thinking comes these things. And the first is, in these last days, sincerely love one another. Verse 8 begins, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Peter says, above all. With regards to other people, loving them is the most important thing you can do. Why? Because in the same way right thinking produces right actions, right feeling, loving produces right loving actions. As the proverb says, keep your heart with diligence, for from it flow the issues, the springs, the issues of life. What we do in this life flows from our heart. Our love for one another will result in loving action towards one another. And so the actions that we will look at in verses 9 through 11 that are coming flow from this command to love one another. Love is the key to our interactions with one another. Now that word loving is the familiar Greek word agape. It means to to feel affection and benevolence for. 
Benevolence means we, we want and we act in such a way that's best, that's good, that's benevolent for another. So love can be defined as a feeling of affection that drives one to act in the best interest of the one they love. Love begins in the heart with affection feeling, and that affection leads to action. And notice that Peter says we are to love one another earnestly. That word earnestly is is a passionate, emotional word. It means fervently, sincerely, and continually. We can't just love for a time and then cease. Our love is to be sincere and permanent. And who is Peter telling us to love? One another. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. The words one another appear in in the next verse and in verse 10 as well. What Peter wants in these last days is a one another kind of life. Maybe if you look around, these are the one another's that you're to live your life with and for in many ways. Now, as Christians, uh, we are called, commanded to love everyone, right? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're even called, this craziness, to love our enemies, right? To love and pray for your enemies. But the New Testament emphasizes that we're to have a, a special love for one another, for other believers in Christ. And as we'll see in our next session, that in the section, our next point, this includes those who are, are not part of your local congregation. But loving one another is especially applicable and practical in a given local church. Because there are people, uh, these are the people that you know, the people you hopefully are interacting with. These are the people that worship with you, the people that you serve with. These are people that you most often have opportunity to demonstrate love to. We at Bridges are called to sincerely love one another. Now, some, some have called Bridges, uh, maybe we've even called ourselves, a, a missions church, and that's great. I think uh, uh, Lyndon Harvey uh, would appreciate that if we come Thursday and hear, hear from him and pray for them. Because we're a missions church. We send and we support missionaries to the ends of the earth. I personally believe that all churches should be missions churches. uh, But that's another sermon. Along with, and maybe more importantly, or maybe at the root of being a missions church, I pray that Bridges is a loving church. That we sincerely love one another. Why? Well, we could list lots of reasons but we're going to focus on the the one that uh, Peter gives right here. At the end of verse 8, Peter adds at least one great benefit of sincerely loving one another. Since love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? There have been lots of debate about what this means. Because as I hope you know, the blood of Christ alone permanently covers, washes away sins. So what is Peter saying here? Well, an, an analogy might help us understand. I think he means that love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket takes the air out of fire. When oxygen is present, a fire can rage. But if we take the air away, the oxygen, the fire stops. Fire needs oxygen to burn, right? And in a similar way, when someone sins against you, 
you have a choice. You can stoke the fire with bitterness and revenge and hatred, or you can douse the fire, cover the sin, take away the oxygen with sincere love and forgiveness. May we love in this way. May nothing evil be allowed to breathe for long. May we keep short accounts with one another. The last days demand sincere love. Peter then adds, along with being self-controlled and sober-minded and sincerely loving one another, in these last days we are to show hospitality to one another. In verse 9, he writes, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think we all understand uh, the English word hospitality, right? Be hospitable. Show hospitality. It involves welcoming people, generously caring for others, inviting them even into our homes. Now, in the Greek, this word is very interesting. It's a compound word, philo-xenos. Philo, meaning love, brotherly love. So showing hospitality is, specific, is a specific application of sincerely loving one another. And xenos, meaning foreigner or stranger. You may, you may have heard the term xenophobia. This, that's where it's from, the two Greek words, xenos and phobia. Fear or hatred or foreigners. Well, this is the exact opposite. Showing hospitality literally means loving a foreigner or a stranger. And so you might be, uh, see uh, an inconsistency here when Peter says, show hospitality to one another. Uh, don't we know one another? Uh, there aren't any strangers here, are there? There may be some foreigners, but not strangers. So, so what's going on? Well, I think the context will help us understand. We need to know that hosp- hospitality... Uh, this, this word philoxenos was of great importance for those traveling in the first century. And don't forget that Peter is writing in the first century, not to a single church, but as we read in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter's writing to many churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. So when he says, show hospitality to one another, he's probably thinking beyond just the people you know in your local congregation. He's thinking uh, of the need to show hospitality to those who may be traveling from other locations. You see, generally speaking, uh, there weren't any Motel 6s, Hilton's, Marriott's in the towns. There may be, have, might have been an inn or something, but oftentimes those were dangerous places. So a traveler would head to a town center in hopes of being invited home by a kind, gracious resident. This is probably at the heart of what Peter means by showing hospitality to one another. He means that we are to love and care for our Christian brothers and sisters, even when they are strangers and foreigners. I'll never forget when, I, uh, when someone showed my family uh, this kind of hospitality. In 1995, uh, I, along with my wife, Christina, and our two kids, Beth, age six, and Michael, age three, spent six weeks in Singapore for training with OMF, our mission agency, before we went on to, to live in Thailand. We were foreigners, strangers in a foreign land. We, we would continue to be that in Thailand, but here in Singapore, that's where it began. 
We were without friends or family. And OMF assigned us to a, a church to attend for those six weeks. And one of the members, a young Chinese woman named Sophie, took it upon herself to take care of us. She spent time with us. She took us shopping. She took us to the Singapore Zoo, which is pretty marvelous. And she even gave me a new camera because I needed to take pictures. This is pre-digital, right? Just the film. She knew that we were, we were uh, there for only a short time. Nevertheless, she treated us like family. She invested in us. She certainly showed us philozenus, hospitality. So how do we today show hospitality? Well, even though we don't live in the first century, where hospitality was crucial for the traveler, we can still show hospitality to one another. This doesn't, uh, even though it, it says uh, loving of strength, it certainly doesn't uh, preclude loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, inviting one another into our homes, especially when one of our brothers and sisters is experiencing a need. But I think there are two other ways to show hospitality that are related to what Peter has in mind. We can open our homes to fellow believers who are passing through, specifically to missionaries who might not be able to afford a hotel. Christine and I, well, the I part is a little exaggerated. Mostly Christina, uh, have tried to do this as often as we can. And it's not only an opportunity to show uh, hospitality, but it's also very rewarding as we're able to spend time with those who are serving the Lord, sometimes in uh, difficult places. So that's one application. Host missionaries or other Christians who are passing through. And just a side note, I say Christians because the context is, is one another. That's what Peter's writing about. But you can, can and should show hospitality to non-Christians as well. International students for, would be one good example. Then another application is to show hospitality to those who visit our church. When they first come, they're strangers, and, and I would encourage you to welcome them, seek to get to know them, even inviting them to lunch. I mean, maybe not bombard them the first time they're here, but as they begin to come back, as time goes by and you get to know them and it feels right for you and for them, you can invite them into your homes. So those are, are just two practical ways of showing hospitality. Now, notice that Peter says that, that we're to do this without grumbling. We're to do all things without grumbling, but he, there's a reason here. And I think that's because sometimes hospitality is difficult. Maybe you aren't great when it comes to getting to know new people. Maybe you have the excuse of being an introvert, right? Maybe you feel drained from, from work, and you just want a, some alone time, some family time. I want to neglect my family. Perhaps we don't think our home or apartment is suitable to host others. There are many reasons, excuses, we can have for not showing hospitality. But this is part of what God is calling us to do and to be in these last days. No matter our circumstances, God wants us to be a hospitable people. Let me end this point with a story I read that will help us see that no matter your circumstances, you can show hospitality. The story comes from Dr. E. Stanley Jones. He was preaching an evangelistic service among the mountaineers of Kentucky, who were very poor uh, people at that time. The meetings were held in a schoolhouse. 
Uh, Dr. Jones recounts his experience with their hospitality this way. At the schoolhouse, I was invited to stay with a man and his wife. And when I arrived, I saw there was one bed. The husband said, you take the far side. Then he got in, and then his wife. I turned my face to the wall as they dressed, and they uh, stepped out while I dressed. That was real hospitality. He, he says, I've slept in palaces, but the hospitality of that one-bed home is the most memorable and the most appreciated. Maybe the next time you're coming up with a reason uh, for not showing hospitality, you might think of this couple and their one-bedroom home hospitality. So Peter has said, in these last days, be self-controlled and sober-minded, sincerely loving and showing hospitality to one another. And to this he adds a fourth and final instruction, serve one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter says that the varied or various grace of God, by the various or varied grace of God, each one of us, every believer, receives a gift from him, from God. We all get a gift from God. I never know when to stop and take a drink when I need to. It's, it's hard. And that the purpose of these gifts, so we each receive a gift from God, gift or gifts, and the purpose of these gifts is not our own fulfillment, it's not our own fame or satisfaction. The purpose of our gifts is to serve one another. Now, unlike what Paul does in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Peter doesn't give a list of spiritual gifts. This isn't going to be a study on spiritual gifts. Instead, he groups his instructions to serving one another under two headings, uh, speaking and serving. First, he writes about speaking. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Those who serve the church by preaching and teaching are to speak as those who speak the very oracles of God. That sounds pretty lofty. The oracles of God. Well, that word oracles is the Greek logion, which is related to the word logos or word. It means an utterance, a saying. Uh, and what Peter is saying is that when you speak in service to the church, speak not your own words or thoughts or ideas, but the words of God. Now, you can speak your own thoughts and ideas if they're coming from the Word of God, but the basis are the words of God. Serving the church means you speak about and from and because of the Word of God. Sometimes I'd like to share my own views. I've, I've thought about that every once in a while. And then something inside me says, don't do that. Share my views of what's happening in our world today. I have some, by the way. Sometimes I like to rant and rave about certain things, certain people. But that is not my job. That is not my purpose. And it's certainly not a service to the church. I must always remain faithful to God's word. Where it comments on things, I can do that. But where it doesn't, where it remains silent, I must remain silent. Because my words are ineffectual. It's only the Word of God that can bring hope and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and truth and salvation and transformation into our lives. Now, this certainly applies to me. 
and any other pastor who preaches on a Sunday morning, but it also applies to anyone who teaches in the church, speaks in the church. In our small groups, in our Sunday school classes, we are to teach the oracles, the words of God. One final word for myself and others who speak in the church, and that word is humility. We are to be mindful that at the end of the day, What we engage in is entirely beyond us. We are not fit for it. But by God's varied grace, and out of concern for His body, our very words become His, for His Spirit is the one speaking. So if this is the gift you've received, serve the church with speaking. And along with speaking, Peter adds serving. So that's a big big category. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, it's important here to understand uh, not what we think when we hear the word serve or servant, but what Peter meant by one who serves. We might be thinking about some weekly volunteer activity. Uh, We serve for an hour or two, and that that is great. That is good. But in Peter's first century context, There was a specific group of people who were household servants. And when he refers to one who serves, he uses the Greek word for this household servant. These were the men and women who gave themselves to to the running of the home. They worked long and hard and ensured that the environment of the home was conducive to healthy family life. And this is the kind of servants we're called to be in the church. Men and women who give themselves to the running of the church. People who work long and hard to ensure that the environment is conducive to healthy church life. And you might be thinking, I can't do that. I don't have the time or the energy to be that kind of servant. Well, I would agree. We can't. We don't. In our own strength. That's why Peter says we are to serve by the strength that God supplies The kind of service Peter speaks of must be accomplished by the strength of God. So if you're doing it in your own strength and you're doing okay, you're not doing enough because you need God's strength. What he's talking about needs the strength of God. So very practically, I can ask, are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ with the gift, gifts God has given you? Are you speaking the word of God to them and or are you serving them? Are you working hard with the strength God supplies to make sure that your fellow believers have what they need to grow in their relationships with Jesus Christ? And there are many ways to do this. Too many to list here and now. But I would say that each one of us needs to find the place, maybe in prayer, spending time in God's Word, that God has for you to serve His body. And then call upon Him for the strength to do that service. Why? Well, you might think so that your church will grow. Believers will grow in their relationship with Christ, and that is certainly part of it, but that's not the ultimate purpose for our speaking and serving. Peter makes that very clear. Let me read all of verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Not even through you, through Jesus Christ. To Him 
belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter began this section by saying, the end of all things is at hand. And he concludes this section by pointing us and praying about the things that will never end. That which will remain forever and ever. That is the glory and dominion of God. Amen. We live in these last days, and because of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, we can enter into relationship with God. We can become children of God. We can speak the Word of God and serve by the power of God. Not for our own glory, but for His. Because He alone is worthy. Because to Him alone belongs glory, greatness, and praise, and worship, and honor, and dominion. That is power and control, and rule, and sovereignty over all things. Not for a day, or a week, or a year, but forever and ever. In these last days, we speak and serve so that God, who is worthy, might be glorified for all eternity. So we've heard Peter's instructions for living in the last days. Since the end of all things is at hand, We're given ourselves to self-control and sober-mindedness. We're to be people who love sincerely. We're to show hospitality. And by God's power and for His glory, we're to speak His words and serve one another. These are the marks of a a, a Christian living for all, for any who have, uh, have given themselves to Jesus Christ. And what a contrast that is to the world. For Peter and for the Christian, the end of all things means uh, eternity in the presence of a glorious God. But for the world, the end of all things means only death and destruction. It means the end of all things from their perspective. In Neville Shute's 1957 fictional account of the end of all things, titled On the Beach... The novel begins with the catastrophic results of an accidental nuclear war. And then uh, details the ending of the world, the end of all things as we know it. A summary of this book reads, In the northern hemisphere, the end had come suddenly, disasterly. In the southern hemisphere, the end would come slowly as radiation drifted in the wind. There would be time to prepare, time to seek solace in religion or alcohol or frenzied sex or in the thing that one had always wanted to do, to drive a fast, expensive car, to buy some splendid object with one's life savings, to consume the best bottles of wine from the cellar of one's club. In the end, when the sickness could not be stopped, the government would issue cyanide pills to those who waited, hoping they would not have to use them, knowing they would. So this, that's just one of the many possibilities that the world thinks of regarding the end of all things. And the question comes, what would you do if you learned that all human history was drifting towards an inevitable end? Because uh, it is. Maybe not through nuclear war, but the end of all things is at hand. So what will you do with the time you have left? Will you pursue those human passions detailed in On the Peach? Or will you follow God's will given by Peter in God's word? Let's pray. As Gary comes to lead us in a final song. Father, help us.
Help us in these last days to do all things for your glory. Help us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Help us to sincerely love and show hospitality to one another. Help us to speak your word and serve